Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen most. If you're looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Dear Father God, we just want to thank you so much for your incredible goodness. And Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we confess that in so many ways uh, we struggle, uh, doubts, unfaithfulness. But God, through your goodness, you overcome everything. Uh, Lord, you overcame the grave. You overcame our sin. You overcame our shame. And God, help us to live lives like Christ. Uh, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be good to those around us. Uh, Lord, help us to embrace the good news uh, that he's preached to the poor. Uh, Father God, we just ask that you now open our minds by your Holy Spirit and open our hearts to receive your word and to turn it into action. Uh, Bless the words we're about to hear. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Well, I'm not quite done with seminary. I still have to read a book. <laughs> then I'll be done. <laughs> well, welcome back to None Like Him, our series on the attributes, attributes, that's a B, of God, guided by A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. I'm really very grateful to be here with all of you for the opportunity to come back here and preach. This congregation has been a big blessing to me, and so I hope to bless you as well. We all know unbelievers doubt God. It's kind of in the name. But do our unbelieving friends know that sometimes we waver in our faith? A friend of mine just converted to Christianity like a week and a half ago. He's been attending church for a couple of years, and uh, actually Journey was the first church he came to. God was working in his life through friends, simply inviting him to come to church and talking to him about God. It's one of those things where an unbeliever slowly finds themselves just engulfed in the community of Christ. One of his friends has a regular Wednesday night thing where they get together, they talk theology, and play video games, like dudes. Um, Well, two weeks ago, my friend made a confession to them that he didn't believe in God, in part because he wasn't 100% convinced with total certainty So he basically told them, I don't believe in God because I don't believe in God, which is fair. Um, He had it in his mind, though, that every Christian, all the times, is 100% concrete in their faith, never wavering, always convinced in all of their emotions and thoughts. He thought that believers never doubt. 
Luckily, he has good, honest Christian friends, and they set him straight. Um, the friend who was kind of in charge admitted that he has doubts, and he asked the friends, who else here doubts? And everyone's like, yeah, me, everyone. Uh, and this just blew my friend's mind. He just didn't know that Christians were like him. Um, so the next day, all alone, he decided that the best thing that he could do would be to just give his life to Christ. He didn't have anyone there. He was just thinking about it, and he's like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to devote myself to Christ and obey him. This is super cool, and I'm really excited to have a new brother in Christ. <clears throat> and this story of his reminds us that doubt is not the antithesis of belief. Unbelief is. The story reminds us that even through our doubts, God is faithful to be good to us. And that's what we're going to be studying today. God's faithfulness and goodness as displayed in Christ, specifically how Jesus responds to doubt and how his faithfulness and goodness comfort us. And we will see that God is faithful to his goodness. In all circumstances, he is always good. I'm sure Colton has taught you that all of God's attributes are each fully and perfectly in sync with each other so that they are never tearing God apart. They're all like faces of one perfect diamond. They're not really even different things. They're just different perspectives on God. With that in mind, let's have two brief definitions of faithfulness and goodness. God's faithfulness is his consistency. It's really easy to understand when you remember that God cannot change. He is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, whatever he says he will do, he will absolutely do it. And whatever he is devoted to, he is devoted to absolutely. And God's goodness, another word for that, is his loving kindness. This describes God's posture toward his creation. He is gentle and kind and compassionate toward us. He understands our weakness and sympathizes with us. He does not treat us cruelly, but patiently. And since God is love, all he does is done in goodness. So with that in mind, we're going to look at Luke 7, and we're going to see four ways that God is faithful to his own goodness, even when we are doubting. Let's begin with Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. That's only the first part of the verse. The next part of the verse says, uh, and John, and that's it. Um, so, John, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. But what are these things? So this is a really good time to get some context. If we just look at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus has performed two amazing miracles that show his faithfulness and his goodness. He has healed this centurion's servant from afar after finding in that centurion faith greater than anyone else in Israel. Jesus simply spoke the word and was faithful to heal him without even visiting. Not only has he healed the sick in this chapter, but he just raised the dead. Jesus is just walking into a small town and he sees a funeral procession. And he has compassion on the mother of the deceased. And out of his goodness, he decided to resuscitate the man. And all the people who saw him bring that man back to life said, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. So John's disciples are telling John some pretty good news. 
It's Jesus is powerful and faithful and good. But even after hearing all that, Jesus, John's disciples tell him that. And in the face of all this, John's heart is still downtrodden with fear and doubt. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. And the end of verse 18. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. So he sent them back to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? If anyone believed in Jesus, certainly it was John the Baptist. And if anyone should have been immune to doubt, certainly it would be John the Baptist. John is Jesus' own cousin. John's birth was prophesied by angel and surrounded by miracles. John has known Jesus since the womb and praised him before either of them were born. He probably would have seen Jesus growing up and known him personally. Maybe he heard about him teaching in the temple. John had the faith and the gall to call all the crowds of Israelites vipers for their hypocrisy. John baptized Jesus and saw the Spirit descend from heaven and rest on him, and he heard the voice of God. John got himself arrested. That's where he is now, in prison. He got himself arrested for preaching righteousness to King Herod, and John would die for his devotion to God's law at the hands of Herod. John had seen and touched and heard Jesus, and he knew about all the miracles he was performing. And yet, even after all that, John asks, are you the one? In the chapter on faithfulness, in the knowledge of the holy, Tozer says that men become unfaithful out of desire, fear, weakness, loss of interest, or because of some strong influence from without, an influence from outside. When we think of doubt, we probably think of the person who's going through an incredibly difficult time. We tend to see doubt come after explosions of negative emotion and disappointment. Maybe you felt this way when you didn't get the job you thought God had for you. Maybe you felt this way when you lost a loved one. Or maybe you felt this way when you or someone you know was abused. These are all common reasons for doubting God in one way or another, but sometimes they lead people past doubt to unbelief. I know a lot of atheists and agnostics who say, God can't exist because why would this happen to me? Why would this happen to this person? But doubts don't only come after singular explosions of negativity. Sometimes it's just the slow heat and pressure of circumstances that eventually build up enough to cause a problem. And without healthy release, they will cause a problem. You see, John has been in jail for a little while now. And if there's anything that will grind you down, it's not knowing why you are where you are or where you're going. If you're like me, over the past two years, you might have felt a little like John, cooped up, confronted by politics, and not sure where everything's headed. Or maybe you feel like Lot from Genesis, who lived in Sodom before its destruction. Peter says that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. 
He saw it day after day, and his soul was constantly tormented over their lawless deeds. Maybe unresolved conflict has gotten under your skin longer than you can remember, or maybe depression has taken hold of your heart. Maybe there's no discernible reason, but your faith is just less. You doubt at times, or at least believe less vigorously than you have before. I've been there. I'm sure a lot of you have been there, and probably some of us are there now, too. We're right there in prison with John, wondering if Jesus is the one. And if he is, why are we still here? Well, let's look at how Jesus responds. We'll see how, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. This is not an answer. Jesus has just been asked a question, but before we get his answer, we see he just keeps on performing miracles. The story could end here and have a happy ending. John doubts Jesus is Jesus. Amen. This shows us our main point that is going to be expanded as we go on, that even in our doubt, God is faithful to his goodness. John's doubt did not change Jesus one bit. Jesus went on healing and performing miracles, regardless of how John felt. Jesus remained faithful to his goodness. Of all the things that shake our faith and weaken our spiritual strength, none of these can affect God in any way. No matter what, God will be God and God will be good because, and I need some help here, God is good and all the time, amen, we believe. Lord, help us in our unbelief. So when you're doubting, follow John's example and admit it to Jesus because guess what? He can handle it. He's going to keep on being Jesus. And remember that no matter what, he is faithful to his goodness. So now we're going to look at the four ways God is faithful to his goodness in this story. So let's look at Jesus' actual response, what he says when he answers the question. Verses 22 and 23. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus performed all these miracles, kind of so he could tell John about all these miracles. He mentions all the things he's done. He's healed the sick and lame. He's raised the dead and preached the gospel. And these are evidences that he is the one. He is the Messiah that John is waiting for. And he points these out in order to build John's faith. Because of this, we can see that even in our doubt, God is faithful to encourage us. God is faithful to his goodness by being faithful to encourage us. I was in a coffee shop the other day, and there was a mother there homeschooling her daughter, and they were working on math. And this young girl, like basically everyone, was having a little bit of trouble understanding a new mathematical concept, because we all do. But the mother was good to her, and she was encouraging to her. 
She didn't just say, oh, it's simple. You really should get it by now. Instead, she gently encouraged her to not worry about what she doesn't understand yet, but to focus on what she does know so far. And Jesus is encouraging to us like that mother. Of course, he wants us to grow in our faith and to know him more. But he won't harp on our weaknesses. He'll acknowledge them and give us the encouragement we need to work through them. God says in Isaiah 42 that Jesus will not snuff out a smoldering flame, nor will he break a bruised and weakened reed. He's gentle enough to build up those who are weak without harming them. And just as he sent his word of good news to inspire faith in John, so he has given his word to inspire faith in us. All of the Gospels and all of the Bibles speak and preach the goodness of God to encourage us if we will only listen. And the best part of this encouragement that Jesus gives and that it has Nothing to do with John. He doesn't say, John, you're doing great, buddy. Enjoy prison. You're a great guy. I know you can do it. John can't do it. John knows John can't do it. That wouldn't be encouraging at all. What we all need to hear Jesus say is, my child, I know your weakness, and my grace is sufficient for you. For when you are weak, you will find your strength in me. Because I am the all-powerful, all-wonderful, never-failing God. It should be incredibly comforting to you that it's not about what you can do, but it's about who Jesus is. But sometimes that's the problem. People don't think Jesus is who they want him to be. That's why Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. There are obvious reasons people would be offended by Jesus. He is holy. We are sinful. And it becomes obvious when we see his holiness that we are sinful. Um, But the one reason that John might be offended is this. Just that Jesus doesn't fulfill all his expectations. John is still in prison. Israel is still subjugated to Rome. And what's Jesus doing about it? Isaiah, Peter, and Paul all call the Messiah a rock of offense, a rock of stumbling. Jesus refers to himself in this way as well. And what that basically means is that people are going to be caught off guard by who Jesus is and stumble instead of standing firm and believing. There are a lot of reasons to be caught off guard by Jesus. Why? Why would the Messiah be born in Bethlehem, of all places? Why wouldn't he be a political ruler and become king of Israel? Why would he hang out with lepers, prostitutes, and tax collectors? Why does he care so much about all the other nations? not just Israel? Why does he forgive people so freely? Why does he work on the Sabbath? Why would he let Judas betray him and the Romans crucify him? Why would God die for us? If you don't know Jesus very well, all of these things are stumbling blocks. 
But here, excuse me, John has probably been caught off guard by the fact that Jesus has not set him free from prison. Maybe he even expected Jesus to replace Herod as the true king of Israel. It's really easy to be tempted to doubt Jesus when he isn't always what you expect or because he allows you to suffer dreary darkness. But his encouragement to you is that he is still the all-powerful creator sitting enthroned above the heavens. So remind yourself of all that he's done, both in history and in your life. Take time, if you need to, to write down these things. Write down the things that have brought joy and light and peace when you feel depressed and dark and conflicted. By meditating on God's faithfulness and goodness, they will, as Tozer says, pass through the processes of understanding and become nourishing food for the soul. And if you're not discouraged or doubting, hallelujah, remember that your brothers and sisters might need encouragement. They might be suffering, doubting, and worried and need kind words to lift them up. You never know what someone else in this room is going through. So we should be faithful to encourage others as well. Now, let's look at what John, or excuse me, what Jesus says when John's disciples leave in verse 24 through 28. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury or in the king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, even the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When John's disciples have left How does Jesus talk to the other people about them, about John? Does he belittle him and say, my cousin, I've known him my whole life and he still doesn't get it. He should know better. No. We see God's goodness in a beautiful way that even in our doubt, God is faithful to defend us. Not only does Jesus build John up by encouraging him, but he builds them up in the sight of others. When John's away, Jesus speaks highly of him. He defends his honor and is gracious. Some of you may be worried that if you confess your doubts to God, he will put you to shame. It would be like withholding a chronic illness from a new doctor because you don't want him to gossip to the nurses. But he is the one you need to talk to about it. And if he's a good doctor, if he's kind and compassionate, He won't talk about you behind your back. Jesus is the great physician. Not only does he not gossip, but he speaks well of you. Those who trust in him, even when they struggle to, will never be put to shame. Tozer put it really beautifully. He said, Now someone who, in spite of his past sins, honestly wants to be reconciled to God, may cautiously inquire. 
if I come to God, how will he act toward me? What kind of disposition has he? What will I find him to be like? The answer is that he will be found to be exactly like Jesus. To the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, considerate. To the weak, gentle. And to the stranger, hospitable. When you come to God with your doubts, he will be found to be exactly like Jesus. He will respond to you like he responded to John by defending your honor. Now, it's obvious to us that we should be more likely to doubt than John. He was the greatest of all the prophets because he was the closest to Christ, and he understood his position best. He knew that he must decrease so that Christ might increase. So if he doubted, obviously, we will struggle as well. But it's obvious to Jesus that God will honor us even more than he honored John. Because even the least in the kingdom will be greater than him. This is because every believer has something John never had. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, if God defended John, how much more will he faithfully defend us when we are weak? So cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. He will not hand you over to shame or ridicule when you confess your weakness to him. He already knows, and he wants you to share it with him. And when someone shares their weakness with you, don't gossip, but continue to speak highly about them to others. God is faithful to defend us, so we must be faithful to defend each other. And because Jesus defended John, the people worshipped God more. Look at verses 29 and 30. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The people listening, even the tax collectors, worshipped God for his goodness when they heard this. Some of them, the Pharisees and lawyers, complained about it. This shows us another facet of God's goodness, that God is faithful to separate the praisers from the powders. God's goodness separates the humble from the self-righteous. Just think about the Olympics right now. There are professionals who have trained their whole lives, which I mean for some of them is only like 13 years, uh, but some of them are older and have been training a lot longer. They've been training their whole lives for a shot to represent their country on the world stage. And some of them show up, and what do they do? They take a knee during their national anthem, they probably complain about things, and they don't lose graciously. No one likes a sore loser. But we love someone who loves their home and their people. And I dare say we would rather take home silver with a humble athlete than gold with a self-righteous one. The people who saw Jesus' goodness naturally separated themselves according to their nature. 
the humble praised him, and the self-righteous mock him. It is good of God to cause a delineation between who is for him and who is against him, so that we can know who his friends are and who his enemies are. The powders are the ones who see God's goodness and decide not to believe. Not that they just doubt, they disbelieve. They actively unbelieve it. They don't just say, you know, I think I believe in God, but sometimes it's hard. No, the verse says they reject the purposes of God. They reject his goodness, and so they live sour lives of envy and jealousy. Tozer had another really wonderful line in his book. He said, The whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all dwell, if we all believed that we dwell under a friendly sky, and that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. Those who believe God is stodgy are put off by his grace. They don't like it when he's good. But we who believe God is kind rejoice in his goodness. Those who believe God is stiff and cruel create a stiff and cruel world. But we who believe God is friendly and compassionate create a friendly and compassionate world. It is good of God to distinguish between the wise and the fool, the righteous and the wicked, the sheep and the goats. He gives us some of that distinction in this life and all of it in the next. And it is because he is always good that he illuminates the difference between good and evil. He shows us the difference and tells us to beware those who are evil. But if he didn't show us the difference, we wouldn't know who to beware. God is protecting us by showing us and revealing those who are evil. It'd be like if someone said, watch your step in a pitch black room. You can't, unless you turn on the lights to delineate where the safe steps are and the unsafe steps are, it's no use. God has turned on the lights on the deeds of men so that all can see. And we can see how people react to his goodness and whether they are praisers or powders. So make every effort in your own life to become a praiser, not a powder. When you see God's grace, even to people you don't really like, be quick to rejoice. Increase your humility and praise, and your joy and faith will go with it. And be careful to be wise in discerning good from evil, both in yourself, in your own heart, and as you look into the world. God separated light from darkness, and it honors him when we acknowledge the distinction between the two. Well, Jesus has one more thing to say about these people, and it's encouraging in kind of a funny way. So let's look at verses 31 through 35. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. 
We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. We see that even when some are doubting, some are praising, and some are pouting, God is not swayed by it all. In all things, God is faithful to his purposes. The powders act like children, trying to change God's mind, but he won't be won over by their petty games. He is an adult among the world of children playing in the marketplace. And they're saying, we played a sad song, why aren't you crying? We played a happy song, why aren't you dancing? They complained about how John acted, and they complained about how Jesus acted, even though they were opposite, and they missed the whole purpose of both of them. Both Jesus and John came to call people to repentance and belief. The Pharisees were so concerned with the means that they never saw the end. But God is more concerned with the end of repentance and faith than he was with the means, whether fasting or eating. In both instances, God's kindness leads us to repentance. And we can take heart in knowing that even though the process may be difficult, and confusing, God will achieve all he plans with us and never be persuaded otherwise. Tozer said, upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenants stand and his promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful, may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. God is faithful to his goodness. He is faithful to encourage us. He is faithful to defend us. He is faithful to separate the praisers from the powders. And he is faithful to his purposes. He has said so in his word and all he says is true. This is our strength for today and our bright hope for tomorrow. That we know that when our suffering is finished, we shall be sanctified. When our doubting is done, we will praise his faithfulness. When our tears are gone, we will thank him for comforting us. When we have died, we shall rise in Christ. For we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Join me in prayer. We will praise you, our God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day we will bless you and praise your name. You are great and greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, we will meditate. 
we shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and we will declare your greatness. We shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. God, you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are good to all, and your mercy covers all that you have made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. We shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to all men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. God, you are faithful in all your words and good in all your works. You uphold all who are falling and raise up all who are burdened. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food. You open your hands to satisfy the desires of every living thing. You are righteous in all your ways and kind in all your works. You are near to all those who call on you, to all who call on you in truth. You fulfill the desire of those who fear you. You hear our cries for help and save us. You preserve all who love you, but all the wicked you destroy. May our mouths speak your praise, and let all flesh bless your holy name forever and ever. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.